Happy New Year again. We're continuing with our series in Luke's Gospel, considering the things that Luke says about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's done his historical work uh, to write it all out uh, and to create a full picture for, well, certainly the person he was writing to to begin with, but it's recording God's word for us today as well. We're seeing something in a little snapshot of who Jesus is and what Jesus demands of us. And the title for today's talk is How to Inherit Eternal Life. And it's on the basis of the text we're going to read from Luke chapter 10. So if you can follow there, if you have a Bible, uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, which is a continuation from uh, our previous session just prior to Christmas. Luke 10 verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of Roberts? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The gospel that is the basis of Christianity challenges the notion that is all through humanity that eternal life, what most people would consider to be some form of reward paradise after death, is something we achieve by our efforts in this life here and now. All religious systems, atheism included, it is a religious system because it's a belief system. They all operate on the basis of a moral code and promote adherence to a set of moral absolutes that have been decided upon within that system of thought. And those systems, or these days they're often called worldviews, uh, that do particularly promote the idea of life after death. Atheism would say that there's not. But most systems of belief in this world would say there is something beyond this life because we know we're not just physical and that's a challenging one for an atheist to answer 
But those systems or worldviews that do have this view of something that is better to come, they require a person to attain a standard of goodness and rightness that deserves this heaven. But when we compare all these worldviews and lay them alongside each other, we, we see that morality standards differ between all of them because they're all generated by us. Systems of thought that are focused on ourselves or th ideas that we have created then mean that the moral standards differ and there is no uh, sort of ultimate standard there. And Christianity is different because we say that one from without humanity, God, the creator of all things who is alone God, is the one who has set the standards. So it is actually a case, and I think we see this in our world, that if one system of belief or one system by which we would live our lives becomes too onerous in the sense that we feel we might be failing um, to live up to the standards that have been set, then it's possible that we might adopt other thinking or we might actually reduce the standards of the God that we have created so that then we're acceptable to him. Do you, we see that in our world and we see that in ourselves. We can readjust our thinking about the standards that we impose or God imposes. But the prevailing system of our world is that there is a morality that is acceptable, but we know that that morality system is a graded thing. For one person, goodness is at this level, and for another, goodness is at this level. We're not talking about that with the good news, the gospel of Christianity, because it's not up to us to decide where the standard of goodness is, because that is determined from outside of humanity by the one who created all things. You might even say that as we've read this section from Luke chapter 10 together, that Jesus, Christians say, is the eternal Son of God who came into humanity to reveal God to us. He's actually advocating the same thing, whereby it's the things that you do that will achieve for you this thing that's described here as eternal life. He's responding, though, isn't he, to a question that's put to him by a religious expert. Somebody who is driven to keep standards that that person has been brought up to see as having to be the standards to reach in life. Multiple ones. So he's responding to that. But I want us at the outset to realise that Jesus isn't advocating living to a standard in order to impress God or a religious system. He instead is saying that we live in the light that God achieves a standard for us and then enables us to live in the freedom of that. He is saying that someone who knows they have eternal life will live in a way that demonstrates the reality of that life to everyone else. So the Christian gospel and it is the only gospel. And Paul says that in some of his writings. There is no other gospel, he says, in the book of Galatians. The Christian good news is that there is an absolute standard of perfection. And actually, for good people, that's bad news. 
And because people who assess themselves in relation to other people then realize when their eyes are opened that there is a standard that's far above and that is God himself who sits alone above everything that has been created and his standard and the revealing of that in creation and through our conscience and through the person of Jesus Christ and in his word that is given to us. That is a standard that is unachievable by any human effort. But the good news of the gospel is that this creator of everything, not the creation of humanity's intellect, he isn't that. He demands this standard of righteousness, knows that we cannot achieve it, but out of love toward people who cannot, grants it as a gift. We're all sinners, the Bible says, rebels against God, deciding that the one who is perfect in all ways is not worth paying attention to. We know better. We set ourselves up as our own little gods. And that's why when we compare ourselves with each other and our standards of morality are all over the place, we become judgmental and critical and hideous people. We're sinners who deserve because we've turned away from God, God's judgment, because we've turned away from his perfection, choosing something which is far, far less than the joy of himself. But he is the one who is the source of life and eternal life and sustains eternal life. And he is the one who gives those who cannot achieve his standards because he is God set apart from us. We cannot achieve a standard that would mean we would have life with him forever. He grants it to us as a gift in the person of Jesus, who is the son of God who has come to be God here on this earth without sin and rebellion, to live a perfect life so that he might be the head of a new race of people who are no longer comparing themselves with each other but are saying to God, I am nothing but in Christ, whom you have put forward as the righteous one on my behalf, I stand before you in him. I'm prepared to give my life to him. The good news of Christianity is that eternal life is received, not achieved. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. We see that in our world that as sin pervades everything, the world is destroyed and is in the process of destruction and people are that within themselves and towards that with other people as well. But the second half of that verse in Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Jesus is teaching here is not that we can achieve this eternal life. He was actually pointing the man to look at himself and see, is he trusting in God who will provide the standard of righteousness on his behalf? And therefore, entrusting that is free to live life where he's no longer comparing himself to other people, but is living for God and for the joy of others. Once received, God's eternal life transforms the person who receives it. 
We live differently because we're under new management in a sense. There's a massive revamp that happens. God has given the controls now and life goes off in a different direction. Freed from the crippling comparison trap that we're all in where we wonder if our morality is good enough and we judge others or even judge ourselves against other people. We're freed from that in the gospel. What is eternal life? The man's question here is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is what this whole section is about. But what is eternal life? In Jesus' time here, 2,000 years ago, the Jews um, had for centuries considered eternal life Uh, to be associated with God's promises of a future kingdom over which there would be a great king. What they didn't realize there in that moment was that great king was Jesus Christ, the perfect man. He will be installed as king on this earth in a future day. God had made numerous statements about this kingdom where faithful Jews would experience the joy of being God's people and being set above all the nations of the earth because God had chosen them. What they seemed to forget by the time of Jesus was the words that God had said to his people back in Deuteronomy. He says, it's not because you're any better than anybody else that I set my love on you. I love you because I love you. This is the way God operates. In God's measure, everybody is at the same level. Sinners, fallen, far from him. But God in his sovereign purposes chooses to set his love on some and gathers them to himself for his glory and then expects that the freedom that that brings means that we will live for his glory. Jews at this time also thought that this eternal life, i.e. this unending existence in terms of quantity, there was no quantity to it because it was going to be infinite and eternal, that this was something to be inherited What must I do to inherit eternal life? This man was thinking, well, there's something I have to do to meet the standards of the one who is going to grant this to me. And they were thinking of God. But actually by this time, when we see it in the writings of John, particularly Jesus addresses the Jewish people who were looking more to Abraham as their forefather. They were looking to a man who had demonstrated faith in God's promises and had lived a faithful life. And they said, oh, because we're his descendants and we live in the way that God has said we should live in the law that was given to those people through Moses uh, hundreds of years later. They said, well, because our bloodline is from Abraham and we've got it, something to be inherited. You know, that moral code or the law that was given to the descendants of Abraham, known as the nation of Israel, the people that God rescued from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai where he gave them the law, that moral code. 613 instructions to govern daily life for an individual within a society where God was to be honored as king. They'd been brought out into a freedom and they were to live the way God said. But by the time the religious experts Uh, In Jesus' time here, their thinking had got to the point where they had to do those things so that God would give them the inheritance. They switched it. Their hearts were now focused on things of humanity 
rather than trusting God for who he was. You know, Jesus addressed this in John chapter 8, verse 44. He addressed the religious experts. One of these guys was the one speaking to Jesus here. He addressed it head on. And he said, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Jesus at that point knew in their hearts that they were wanting to get rid of Jesus because he was upsetting the stable religious system, which was a corrupt one. Yes, God had given the instructions hundreds of years before, but it had just developed into something that was brutal and condemning. It was a works-based, eternal life-achieving inheritance. And Jesus says, you're not working. You're not doing things in the way that God wants you to do them. In fact, you want to do away with me. He knew that murder was in their hearts. They wanted to do away with him, the very one who was God in the flesh, who had come to show what freedom in living God's way is all about. So being a son of Abraham, i.e. a bloodline, a link with somebody who has lived on this earth, uh, was not enough and is not a guarantee for eternal life, Jesus says. But he's come to bring us into the understanding that a relationship with God as our Father is a possibility, but it's not something that's achieved. Hands up if you did a lot in the process of being born. I'll put my hand down. Jesus spoke of being born again. He said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you're a teacher of Israel, you've missed it. He says, you need to be born again. And he says, well, how is that possible? How is it possible to go back into the mother's womb and be born again? Jesus says, no, it's not that. It's to be born as a new person in a spiritual sense. And God is the one who will do that for you. Trust him for it. You must be born again. That's God's grace to bring us into a relationship with him where we can say that God, who is the one who has all this perfection, a standard we cannot achieve by any works of our own, says, you're my child and I love you and you're mine. Jesus describes eternal life as a relationship. It's not just about quantity, i.e. infinite unendingness, but eternal life, as Jesus says in John 17 and 3, is about quality. He says this, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. He was praying to his father at the time. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus gives us the definition of what eternal life really is. It's a relationship with God that we cannot have by any effort of our own. God will do a work in us to make us to realize that we cannot achieve the standard that he has set. In fact, we have turned away and fallen away from it, naturally born into sin. But then in his grace, he will open our eyes to see that Jesus is the one who on our behalf will be our righteousness. And faith in him brings this being born again, this new birth. It's not mere knowledge about God. It's personal knowledge of who God is as revealed through Jesus. 
me just conclude this section about eternal life and what it is with the words of Jesus or the words of John as he's introducing Jesus to us in his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To all who did receive him, making the point that eternal life is received, not achieved. To all who did receive him, that's Jesus. To those who believed in his name, I who Jesus is. He's the one that God provides where I cannot provide. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. It's a work of God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has done a work in you. That means that you now are his child and you are that forever. And that frees you up to live in the joy of knowing him as your father. He's no longer your judge. He's your father. What glorious truth. So eternal life is not achieved. You know, the religious experts question here, it tells us in the text, was a test for Jesus. Here was a man with a motive who was uh, trying to, I think, undermine this, this man, Jesus. You notice how he, he addresses him, teacher. Jesus had become known as a, as a rabbi or a teacher, and he had a following of disciples. People were listening to him, but he was saying things that were actually a massively different from what the rabbis in the synagogues would have been teaching. So I wonder, in the way Luke gives us it here, this man is coming to test Jesus. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, in this teacher. Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice that the man instantly puts himself in the spotlight. He puts himself in a pedestal and he's soon going to be knocked off it. Jesus will do that to each of us if we'll let him. There are times in all of our lives, even as Christians, where we fall into this trap of comparison and achieving a goodness in the hope that God will reward us. Let's not kid ourselves that once we're a child of God, we don't fall into that, but we do. And if we do that, then Jesus will take this text and bring it to us and knock us off and point us to what it means to love God and love others. He asks what he should do. The man is saying that it's all about externalities, what's seen by others. He seems to be forgetting it's what's seen by God that is important. We can't ever forget, any of us, believer or unbeliever, that God sees the heart. You go back to 1 Samuel 16 and that selection process that Samuel was asked to do to uh, God was going to show him the future king and it was going to be David. And he saw one of his older brothers and he said, there's a striking man that's going to be the new king. And God says, no, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He's looking inside. It's not about externalities. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, the writer there in New Testament times says, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees what is in here and he wants that to be transformed, to be set free in the knowledge that we have a relationship with him as father through faith in his son, who is the standard of righteousness achieved in his life and in his death on our behalf. It's not us. It's all about Jesus, and we receive it. This man, along with many others of the religious elite of the days, and I, I use the word elite there rightly, I think, because it was. They had set themselves apart as being special. We need to be careful as Christians that we don't fall into the same trap. 
Here was an elite group who for them eternal life was achieved by their doing and how good they looked to others. It's what Jesus addressed so often in his conversations with the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law. You know, Paul, who himself was one of the best Pharisees, was knocked off his pedestal as he was going to persecute the new Christians. And he met with Jesus and in the dust, he realized that there was a man who had lived and maybe he'd met him, who had been crucified on a cross, but was alive again. I mean, how does that happen? Only because God is the one doing it. And he comes face to face with Jesus, knocked off his pedestal. His life is turned around. He realizes it's no longer about what he does, but it's what Christ has done that means he can live in freedom. He says this in Romans chapter 3, after he has said that everybody on this earth is a sinner and everybody sits under the law of God, which is the standard set that none of us can achieve. Yes, it was given to Israel, but it, it extends to everybody. It reveals God's standard that's unachievable. He says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that's everybody, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. God is just. Sets the standard and says, you're all accountable. You can't do anything of your own. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's why as Christians, we must be in God's word all the time because it's through the revelation of God himself. If you want to say it's God's law, it's God's revealing of himself to us. We must be in this because it exposes to us the hideousness of our sin, even as believers. In his genius way of then addressing the man's question, the Lord, of course, in his infinite and perfect wisdom, um, he, he exposes this poverty of works-based religion where you work in order to achieve reward. He says, what is written in the law? You're the expert. What, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Or how do you understand it? Puts the question back on the man. And it's a point of interpretation because here was the man who had the perfect knowledge most likely and could quote all 613 of the laws to you. And Jesus says, what does the law mean? Boil that down for me and tell me a summary statement of what the law says that you should do. We have to handle God's word correctly. Not come to it and make it fit what we think it's saying, but let God say what he's saying. And that takes time and care in the matter of understanding the text, interpreting it rightly, and then applying it. Let's not go to it and make a text mean something it's never meant to mean, and we're going to get to that in a moment with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And let's apply it right. Because in Jesus' day, the Jewish leadership, the religious elite, <coughs> while they knew the inside and the outside of the Old Testament and the laws, and it governed their very life, and they were just fastidious in everything that they did, in John chapter 5, Jesus said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, i.e. 
By knowing them and doing them, you think you have it. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus didn't hold back in saying that life, this true eternal life, this relationship with God that we know as child to father was through himself. It's not something that could be achieved by keeping the law. This is God's grace, undeserved favor to us who've fallen. He says, come be my child. I've provided the one who satisfies me, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. And I've punished him for your sin, even though he was not guilty of it. Now accept that righteousness and live in the freedom of it. Love me and love other people. What did the man say in response? His summary was what I've just said. He picks up two statements that are in the law, Deuteronomy 6 and 5 and Leviticus 18 and 19. And it was a summary that the Jewish teachers would repeatedly give to the people in Jesus' day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind is added in the New Testament. It speaks of you love God with everything that you are. That's the simple uh, understanding of that and straightforward. And the second one, Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. The man quotes it because that's what's being said. This is different from uh, the other occasions in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, I suggest. Those two are parallels where the Lord is asked by somebody, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus uh, summarizes the law with those two. He says, well, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was, gave two back. In the sense, it's like a coin, two-sided. They're inseparable. But he was only quoting back to them what the Jewish leaders were teaching the people. But yet they'd missed the heart of it. Because their love for God and for other people was missing. They were loving themselves and their own righteousness. And Jesus had come to expose it. Just a little thing on this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and uh, with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind, some have said, is, is a summary of the first five of the Ten Commandments, the first tablet of the law that was given. Ten are really a summary of everything else. All Godward. And then the summary of the second of the Ten, uh, the second five of the Ten Commandments. They're all towards other people. So it's a summary, helpful one. And we take it to ourselves as we're living life in the freedom that God grants us in this relationship we have with him through faith in Jesus that sets us free then to love him and love other people. They come together. It's one thing. It's how life should be characterized. Jesus, in all of his authority, says, you've answered correctly. Just love how he takes the man down. I shouldn't really say that, but the man had set himself up for a fall, hadn't he? And we do that all the time. We don't take pleasure in people being belittled. The Lord wasn't doing that. The Lord was exposing the wrongness of his heart, and he does that with us in love to show us that we cannot achieve the standard that God demands. Jesus says to him, do this and you will live. Really saying that you do this genuinely from a transformed inner life, and you'll have life. Now to do that, you need to trust the promises of God. Not 
to think that your righteousness is going to be rewarded by a God who then is in your debt. God is never in our debt. Let me just say this, though. The gospel does necessitate doing. But it comes after receiving what has been done. We receive new life from God through faith in Christ and then live it by doing what God enables us to do according to the instructions that he gives. Let's never get that order mixed up. I do it all the time. You can slot into seeing things in God's word that say live this way and you live that way and you realize after a while you've done it so that God will owe you. How twisted is the human heart? God says, no, it's not that way at all. You just live in the freedom of this life that I grant you, in the standard of righteousness that is achieved on your behalf in my son, Jesus Christ. Just live in that and you'll naturally do what I call you to. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. There it is again. This righteousness that comes through a relationship with God through faith in Jesus is granted to us as a gift. And this is not from yourselves, a gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The man tries to justify himself. Luke says it that way. But notice where his concern is. He doesn't address the matter of his love for God because he probably thinks that his life and all of its external observance of the law as it looks to other people oh that man really loves God with the way he lives he qualifies it and says well who's my neighbor he's more concerned about how it looks in his interactions with other people this brings us back to the point I was making at the very beginning there were class and religious divisions in Jewish society that created hatred and all sorts of trouble back then just as there is now in our societies we look down on others. The religious elite were accusing Jesus, why, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're the religious people. Why does he go there? Condemning attitudes. Deep divisions in our society are caused because of this mentality that we have this works-based religion. My morality is superior to yours, so therefore I will be condemning of you. It reduces society to a mess, doesn't it? exclusivism, can't even say the word, tribalism, isolationism, persecution, conflict, war. All out of this sense that I'm better than you. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the tolerance that is in society says to us that we should just be accepting of everybody, but yet they're unaccepting of those people who don't accept that tolerance. It's self-defeating. And Jesus says he's the way. And the criticism comes against Christianity that says that Christianity is just so exclusive. But do we not see that whenever we're in our own standards of righteousness, it's even more exclusive? We're the ones who draw the lines. And we'll exclude anybody that just doesn't match our standard. It's a faulty system. Christianity is not that because the standard is Jesus himself and he's given himself on our behalf. Let's get to this good Samaritan 
you're looking at the clock and thinking, well, how's he going to do that in two minutes? Let's race through it. Be careful with the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus was using it as a reason to address the problem of this man's heart and everybody that was listening and us too. He was not speaking about himself. Luke maybe includes it in his, in his writings because it could be a picture of what Jesus has done for those who are undeserving, but that's not the reason that Jesus spoke it. It's written for a reason. The man is going down the steep descent, 17 mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's dangerous and he's beaten up by robbers and left half dead. You have a priest who comes past, says he was going down, which means he was leaving Jerusalem and going to Jericho, which was probably uh, his priestly town. Now for a priest to be leaving Jerusalem, he's already done his priestly duty. So the need to preserve his purity according to the law, uh, in a sense, was negated. But he passes by on the other side because he's afraid that could be a dead body and he's not to be defiled by a dead body. A Levite comes past, doesn't say which direction he's going. Seems as though he goes over, has a look, can't be sure, leaves. Actually, a Levite didn't have the same restrictions. Could have, and just could have intervened and done something. And the people who were just the, the standard religious, irreligious lay people of the Jews must have been loving this as Jesus was getting to it because they're expecting that the next person who's going to walk along is who? A Jewish lay person. But boom, the Lord smacks them with something else. Samaritan is the next one along. And what does he do? He took pity, gets off his donkey. He goes and bandages him. He pours in oil and wine into the wounds. He puts the man on his donkey. He brings him to a place of safety. He spends the rest of that day and night with him in that place, tending to his needs, and then provides two days wages which probably provided enough board and lodgings for that man for six weeks. And then went off saying, if it costs you anything more, I'm going to come back and I will pay you the rest. The Jews hated the Samaritans, particularly the religious elite, even the lay people. In John chapter 4, John gives a summary in, when he's recounting the experience that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. He makes the statement, he says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Actually, the Greek says, Jews won't even share cups that a Samaritan has touched. They thought they were defiling people. You saw a Samaritan drinking from a cup of water, you would never touch that cup, even if you washed it. You just wouldn't use it. They hated them. But here was this man who comes and demonstrates the love for neighbour that this religious leader was trying to justify in himself. He's trying to minimize the group that he is justified to show his love to. Do you notice what Jesus does? Before I get to that, loving others, just as a summary of what the Good Samaritan did. Loving others is inconvenient, it's dirty, it's costly, and it's time-consuming. It's what God calls us to. And it's what God frees us to live like. Jesus' response to the man at the end of telling this little example story is really important. Notice what he says. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Here is Jesus' point. He switches it. The man had asked, who's my neighbor? Looking at other people and judging them. Jesus says, who was the neighbor? 
out of the three. And the man is forced, it would seem, and he can't even mention the name of the Samaritan. He won't say to him, he won't even say it's love. He says, well, I suppose it's the one who showed the mercy. Jesus just exposes the heart. <coughs> the NET Bible gives a helpful commentary at this point, and it says, we become a neighbor by loving. Jesus effectively was saying, do not think about who they are, but who you are. You know, in our global economy today, we're much closer to people in, in terms that were not there before technology gave us the facility to be in touch with people and to send gifts and so on. Jesus' point is that loving God and loving others means that we see ourselves as the neighbor. We don't judge other people. We're freed from that. Turn it back on ourselves and see that our relationship with God as Father then frees us to live as his child and to demonstrate his love to other people. And we do that freely. We see ourselves as the neighbor to whoever is in need. And we can give and we can give. Now, my point about mentioning the global system is that we can be good at sending a standing order or responding to an appeal for people who are in need across the world when there are people right here that need us to be a neighbor. Jesus is saying it, would be the, it is the natural outflow of those who have eternal life. He said to him, go and do likewise. The man knows he can't go and do that unless his heart is transformed. Jesus, faith in him and God the Father through the working of the Spirit who indwells us transforms our hearts to free us up to be a neighbor to others. It means that we cannot consider ourselves elite. We should never do that. We should never put God in our debt. We live this eternal life out, touching other people. God's expectation that those genuinely changed internally by the gospel will love people externally in this way, by becoming the neighbor. You know, it's easier in community too. Doing it with other people often makes it easier. That's why Community Kitchen tonight is an event where we can invite people and be a neighbor together. It's easier to do it together. We don't do this out of obligation, but out of love for God and out of the love that overflows and the grace that flows, it touches the lives of other people so they might know God's grace too. I just want to finish with Ezekiel 36 and 26, which was a statement that God gave to Israel that I believe is realized in us. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God does the work. It's all done. We receive it and then we live it. It's what God calls us to. We're to be a good neighbor. Let's pray.